everyone to tonight's book launch hosted by the Academy of Ideas, the Academy of Ideas Parents Forum and the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies. Uh, abroad, uh, we're very pleased to be working with the Parents Forum and the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies. We had a uh, book launch uh, a, a number of months ago now with Nancy McDermott's uh, new book and so we're very delighted to be hosting tonight's online launch for The Corona Generation, the new book by mother and daughter Emma Gillens uh, and Jenny Bristow. And I mean, in terms of prescient books, this one has to top the charts because uh, it was always going to be the case that young people, education um, and schools and that whole debate was going to be take centre stage when it came to looking at the effect of lockdown. But there was just no way of anyone knowing back in March that this kind of the situation we are dealing with now. Um, you have to keep, I, I anyway, have to keep pinching myself and reminding myself um, that this is reality, that we really have been in this situation for months and months. Um, and God knows what it's been like for young people who have not only had their exams cancelled, their some some of them their leavers celebrations cancelled, their day-to-day -day life thrown up in the air. Um, but Emma and Jenny decided um, early on that this was going to be something that they wanted to take a, a deep dive and a look into and do some research into. And so they produced early on the book, The Corona Generation, working together to look at how um, the not the pandemic but lockdown and regulations and the response to the pandemic crucially was affecting not just young people, but their interaction with um, other generations. And so I'll just, uh, many of you on this call um, will know of Jenny and some of you will be meeting Emma for the first time. And I'll briefly introduce them that they've got uh, much long, longer illustrious bios on our Academy of Ideas website. Jenny is a senior lecturer in sociology at the Canterbury Christchurch University and she's author of many books dealing with the issue of generation, generational relationships and, and how politics interplays with um, the generations and the way that they interact with each other, including Stop Mugging Grandma, Why Boomer Blaming Won't Solve Anything and of course the Corona Generation and her daughter Emma uh, is a year 12 student and has written for Spite on this issue as well as co-authoring this new book with her mum Jenny uh, and is actually on the February the 18th speaking on a panel that I am also chairing um, which is a, a new initiative called Free Speech Champions which is a project run with the BOI charity which many of you will know um, and the Free Speech Union uh, looking at free speech in, with, in relation to students, in relation to young people at school and fighting for free speech. So a uh, very welcome to Jen, very big welcome to Jenny and Emma. At this point, I would just like to say before we get kicked off, a massive thank you to uh, the Academy of Ideas and um, sounds like I'm thanking myself, but really to the team for continuing to put on these debates and be able to, you know, usually we would be able to have uh, a book launch where everyone would be having drinks and, and cheesy nibbles at this point. But to be able for the Academy of Ideas to offer to put on this launch and host it has, and these kind of events has really kept me and I know lots of people sane throughout these successive lockdowns. And if you want to show your support and can at this point show your support financially to the Academy of Ideas, other than following us on social media and sharing all these events with your friends, uh, you might want to think about donating to us, but also supporting us by becoming an AOI associate, which you can uh, find a link to there in the chat um, that my one of my colleagues is going to put in academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. Becoming an AOI associate means not just 
giving us a, you know, a m- monthly contribution and showing your support that way. But also when life does eventually, and it will eventually, get back to some semblance of normality, and when we start putting on real life events and that festival, the Battle of Ideas, remember that, it's not, it's not gone away, it still exists and is going to happen. Becoming an AOI associate gives you a lot of opportunities to get insights and previews and, uh, and, and insider knowledge on the festival, so it's really worth considering. Right, all of that aside, how I want to do this, um, as much like we've done other book launches, is that Jenny, Emma and I will have a bit of a discussion for about 25 minutes. I've got some burning questions to put to them. And then after we'll have a bit of an informal chat and after that we'll come out to the audience for uh, rounds, several rounds of questions and answers. Um, you know, the, the Corona generation is obviously looking at a particular issue in relation to the uh, to the pandemic and lockdown restrictions. And I think it's worthwhile us, it, us remaining quite tight in relation to the, the issues that the book deals with. And um, you can, if you haven't already, get a copy of this book on Amazon. I, like all good millennials, have got it on my laptop, so I can't hold up and brandish a copy. I've got it online. You can buy it on Kindle, online, and um, in the flesh in paperback. I think it's 7 99 so it's a bargain. Uh, get that on Amazon and the link will be there in the chat and it's on the Academy of Ideas website. So welcome Jenny and Emma and thank you very much to the pair of you for uh, talking to us tonight. So I want to start off with an impossibly broad question um, but and maybe it has an obvious answer um, but in it's you know unique that you have a, a intergenerational authorship of a book number one um but also what i mean in particular of you know other than the obvious anecdotal um, reasons why you might write this what was it about the issue of generations and the issue of young people that particularly um interested you in writing about this because i know that at the start of the pandemic the whole of the focus was on the elderly and uh, and not necessarily talking about effects on young people. So why was it that the corona generation was something that you wanted in particular to focus on? I think from, from my point of view, um, having um, written a lot about the sociology of um, generations and particularly looking at questions of generational consciousness, um, it just seemed very obvious when the whole thing first broke that this is something that would have a really significant impact on the generation coming of age at this time. Um, I mean, when Boris Johnson said, yeah, it's the worst public health crisis for a generation, I kind of thought he was right. When he said it will be over by Christmas, I thought he was wrong. Um, I thought that what was happening was something that was, you know, it's a significant world event. And these kind of social shocks do historically kind of forge a sort of sense of, um, you know, a, a generation's kind of sense of itself and its distinction from generations older and and younger than itself. So I thought it was worth exploring as an idea. And also I was, I had the the feeling that lockdown specifically was something that was very, very unprecedented and was quite significant in this regard because, you know, there's no nice way of having a pandemic, right? Um, It's always gonna be horrible. People are always gonna be unhappy. Uh, authoritarian measures were always going to be used to contain disease. So it wasn't that just that we were having this pandemic, it was that everyone was talking about this sudden global, and it was a global phenomenon, shutdown, the stop of the world, as saying, well, this has never been done before. And it was a kind of an experiment. I mean, I think, and th- I think that's been acknowledged. And it seemed to me that for young people, it would create that very clear schism 
between life before COVID and life afterwards and that sense of you know society deciding that it was going to stop itself and, and have a pause was quite significant so that was the the sociological reason um for writing it I don't know if, if Emma wants to say anything um I think the reason that I wrote it or helped write it at the beginning was that I remember the feeling that a lot of my friends had felt when the exams were cancelled and I only say the exams were cancelled because that was about approximately three days before we got let off school and just that feeling of everything completely collapsing just for even if it was that hour of just not having any idea of what to do and then obviously as I was in year 11 a lot of my friends and I we didn't have anything to do for the next three months so really it was the only way to kind of make any sense of what was happening was through writing and figuring out and talking to because a lot of the book is talking to people and that's how it was written the only way to make sense of what was going on was through writing mm -hmm. and that, and one of the things that you pick up on um and actually emma in some of the sections that you um contribute contribute to is this question of uh, you know I, I was reading stuff you were talking about like the idea of virtual intimacies and the way in which uh, interaction is changing for young people. I mean, anecdotally, I'm sure there's going to be lots of anecdotes in this session. I think there's nothing wrong with that, actually, because as you say, lots of the book has been framed around talking to people and their experiences. But I remember when I was young, I, you know, mum couldn't get me off MSN. And I had, you know, I was actually probably the first generation who did lots of my interaction online when you came home from school, having spent time with everyone all day, you then went on MSN. And, and, and so I was wondering to what extent you thought some of the trends that the lockdown has perhaps catalyzed were there already. So the question of uh, life moving increasingly online. I mean, I know that, for example, feminists are always talking about the fact that so much of young teenage women's, uh, young teenage girls' experience of themselves is through online interaction. I mean, has the, is the lockdown something new or has it an experience with it or has it just catalyzed trends that were already there for Gen Z um, or younger millennials? Yeah, I mean, I think at the beginning, it could have, you could definitely say that it did catalyze things, but I think now it's completely changed it because you don't see young people wanting, like people don't want to go home and go on their phones anymore. People want to get out. If like you have to see, if you are able to see your friends at all, it's for a walk outside like people want to get out people are waiting for summer to get out it's not it's completely reversed what people see as valuable and what people see as their space before I think a lot of teenagers saw their space as their online space but now they want to be separate from their house they want to be outside and I think I actually was thinking about this quite recently when I walk around my town and there's, I don't know whether anyone else has noticed that increasingly people slightly younger than me is skateboarding has become a big thing. And I think that shows that people just want to be outside. And I think so there, it really has reversed a lot of what's been going on, that people are seeing the value of being in real life more than they were before. But I, but I do think that it has catalyzed the whole thing with young people and like the politics online. I do really think that that's something that's been completely changed over the lockdown. I mean, and Jenny, I mean, the, one of the things that I've noticed and you mentioned in the book actually, um, and in some of the articles that you've written around this is that the, the, the relationship between young people and old people 
um, has, you know, there, there were tensions there already in terms of the kind of the separation of young people from their elders and that generational trend. Then there was just this brief moment at the beginning of the pandemic where there were stories of, of young people, teenagers, not, you know, not just doing paper routes, but delivering food and taking initiatives. And there was like, it was really exciting. And that's kind of all but gone now. But has there been a similar in the way that Emma says, it's kind of actually, dare I say it, it almost sounds like there might be a silver lining to it if it's the case that more teenagers are more likely to want to demand spaces in real life as it's called. But what has happened in, in, in that kind of trend? Mm, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I've always been very critical in my previous work of the idea that there is this sort of conflict between generations. I, I tend to see it as something that's being kind of manufactured as a policy narrative to try and re restructure the welfare state. I mean, that's the, the, the kind of general line I, I take because most surveys show that actually there isn't, you know, young people, older people, that they care about each other in their families. There isn't that kind of conflict on on everyday life. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I found really sad, and again, I think prompted us to write the book, not least because we needed something to do uh, with no exams going on and everything, was that I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I sort of felt there was a real opportunity there for to bring people, to bring young people in, actually, to say, look, this is a massive crisis. Now's your chance, step up, let's look after you know, older people, they need looking at, and, and as you say, Ella, that there was that moment where that started to happen. And then it was outlawed. And that's, you know, and I use that word very deliberately, um, that particularly for young people under working age, because a lot of my students, I mean, they've worked in supermarkets through the pandemic, they've, you know, they've done loads as a sort of the heavy lifting as, as workers. But for uh, younger students, they weren't allowed to do that. And what was worse, was that they were very clearly kind of presented as a danger. So rather than being seen as, you know, a resource that could help look after older people, they were kind of pathologized as these sort of asymptomatic germ spreaders. Um, and that makes me very worried actually, because I think that one of the things that makes me most sad about the way the discussions about the pandemic have gone is that it seems that often instead of having this separation between people who are sick and people who are well, which is what you'd expect in a pandemic. Um, you've had this separation between the young and the old, for example, as though, you know, little Johnny's gonna kill granny by giving her a kiss. And I just think that that is, to me, really troubling. I don't think it necessarily affects how people want to relate to each other in the future, but we've got to bear in mind, I mean, two years, Okay, so it's been a year now, but by the time we kind of come out of this, you know, two years in a child's life is a very long time. And how that will affect their kind of ability to forge those relationships with uh, members of the older generation, I'm not sure we can really take it for granted. Well, yeah, I mean, if you just dig into that a little bit further, I mean, will this, do you think, prophecies at this point are a bit kind of like... <laughs> Yeah. no one likes to make them because things are changing all the time but if you take for example that that wider trend so if you before coronavirus was ever on our lips um the things that you were writing about jenny in relation to the kind of view of old uh, you know whereas young people are now seen as the kind of uh feckless suckers of society's resources for continuing to having raves in bristol um a year and a half ago it was old people who were as you write in the book you know 
bed blockers and that kind of the the disdain for the elderly makes the you know calls into question slightly the kind of uh, often it feels kind of uh almost fake uh, expression of care for them in terms of clapping for carers and all that kind of thing um today because there isn't a sort of direct link for that for that feeling of solidarity with the old people but the, the trend to kind of demonize one section against another and keep that rift and make and make that as you say false distinction between generations will will that if i'm thinking hopefully will there be a surge in in intergenerational relationships afterwards though will there be a surge in solidarity or how emma maybe you can answer in your experience talking to people your age i mean what how does it make you feel in terms of a of a citizen in society does it make you feel more atomized in your age group or has this made you want to branch out more um i think it has made us more atomized as an age group because i think the whole concept of like the effects it's going to have in the next few years and the effects it's had on our education is very individual too are very specific age group that no one older than us can know the effect it's had on our education and the way looking at it as we grow up in the society post pandemic is very different from those who already have jobs or who have left the job place it's very very separate and I think that because it's been so focused on shutting different areas of the economy shutting different areas of schools like everything's just being shut down and put in boxes and it's not really allowing anyone to see society bigger than that. And I think that's a shame, but I do think it has made us more atomized in an age group. And yeah, Jenny, go ahead. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think there's a tension. I think it's very, very difficult, like you say, to, to give prophecies. And I'm aware that I can sometimes be a bit on the bleak side. I think, it, well, it's just been a horrible year, hasn't it? Um, but I, I think that there's there's a sort of a, a balance here because on the one hand, I think there's there's that very human need for contact and for intimacy. And I think certainly when we wrote the book, there was a real sense that actually a lot the, a lot of the young people Emma talked to kind of were really shocked because they realized what they'd missed, you know, what they missed. They're suddenly not being able to take school for granted, not being able to take for granted that you could see your friends. And there was one quote in the book where one of the girls said, you know, we're going to be we're just going to be so happy to see each other again, you know, and 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 I think that's still there. I think people on a human level are really quite desperate to connect. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I think that there has been something profoundly cynical about this sort of narrative that we're doing this to protect the old people and those young people who don't get with the program are being really selfish and They've got blood on their hands and and all of that. And I'm very nervous that when at some point the bills come in, there will be some discussion about how, well, we, you know, we've got to take the money away from the old people because we did it all for you. And I don't think that's that that's how I don't think that's why the response um, to the pandemic has taken the form that it has. I think there's there's a number of reasons why it's taken the form that it has. But I just kind of find it worrying when things are presented as sort of you know, clashes of, of generational um, rights or, or, or privileges. Do you want to say I, I was just going to say, I also think that I just remembered a conversation I had with some of my friends a while ago, and they were saying, oh yeah, my granny sometimes see her friends, and she's like, oh yeah, I don't really care, like, 
And it's like, I think there's a big difference between older people and younger people in the kind of moral of the lockdown. Like if older people break lockdown, they're putting themselves in danger. So they have their on their conscious, their own safety. Whereas for us, we, we've got the narrative of being told that us going out is harming older people. And that's a very different kind of moral question. And I think that's also what's quite dividing because yeah, it's just not the same kind of responsibility that you have if you're being told you're harming the older generation or that you're harming yourself is very different. Well, I, I want to ask you about the feeling of powerlessness and what that does to um, a, not just young people, but a generation that are actively in the, pro you know, in the process of growing up and shaping the way, supposedly shaping the way they uh, appear in society and shaping society at the same time. But I want to ask one kind of difficult question. Um, before that, which is that there's been some kind of discussion um, on social media. There was an article written about um, the effect that this is having on kids that caused some controversy, I think it was in the Daily Mail. And there's, there's a discussion about resilience. And there are some people that argue, uh, you know, what about resilience? And then, you know, some people bring up, you know, historical examples of times in history when uh, life was difficult, whether it be world wars, whether it be um, and other kind of challenges, um, when people bounce back. And there's this sort of idea that the, the contention is, I know that Jenny, you have argued in the past, um, especially when it comes to the issue of mental health, about young people, uh, that there being a sort of panic, pre-coronavirus I'm talking about, a panic about young people's ability to be resilient, young people's ability to um, deal with things like anxiety, stress, change in their lives. Obviously, this is at a very different scale that we're dealing with in the pandemic, and maybe that's your answer. But I have felt myself uh, squirming sometimes and, uh, uh, when I hear um, overblown arguments, not, not in the book that you've written, but uh, in media discussion about the extent to which children's mental health is in danger and it and it can sometimes feel like the only criticism of lockdown at the moment that's sort of acceptable is mental health and it met the reason why I squirm is because I think well when we get out of this I'd like to get back to the idea of kids being um like bouncy balls um so that that tension um how do you how do you kind of tread that balance with by not uh patronizing as it were young people at the same time as saying that this is a real thing I do think that's a, a big problem in this discussion, really. And it was one that we were conscious of and perhaps quite cheekily. You know, we wrote a book called The Corona Generation uh, with a few paragraphs in it that says, but we mustn't be fatalistic. You know, <laughs> we, you know, I mean, I was worried even back in, in the spring that there would be this idea that um, there'd be a generation of, of kids that were <coughs> sort of whose life, life was determined by the pandemic and I don't think that's necessarily true and it's a difficult balance to take but you know my understanding of generational consciousness is that it's something kind of significant it's quite distinct from generational experience you know and in our book we're not writing about all kids you know we're writing about a few we're writing about kind of symbolic um, narratives rather than you know real experiences that need to be kind of studied and also you know with the, with the benefit of time as well I mean sort of writing something like this in the moment um, isn't something that I want to make the habit of. You know, I mean, it's, it's very difficult constantly trying to process something immediate. So I think the, I think it's true to say it would be, it would compound the tragedy 
to come out with this idea of, oh, this COVID generation that's going to be forever scarred by lockdown. And it would also be an abdication of responsibility because it'd be a way of society saying, well, because of the pandemic, you've got no future. It was all because of the pandemic, which is actually a way of then saying, oh, it's all because of the old people, you know, and it just feeds that generational conflict narrative. Mental health, I think, um, is a tricky one, though, because it's also real. You know, the, there was a mental health crisis amongst young people going into lockdown. And I think the pandemic has sort of, and lockdown have made that worse. And the reasons for that mental health crisis that there are many, um, I mean, I, I don't, can't profess to sort of understand all of them, but when, when I've looked at this in relation to undergraduate students in a, um, a study I did with colleagues, I mean, we did investigate all the various sort of dimensions of it. It's like, why is it that students, I mean, for a start, a load of them come to university with diagnoses and mental health problems, I mean, many, many more than used to in the past. And then these problems get worse while they're at university. And it's like, well, what are we doing to these kids? You know, <laughs> what is it about university that's pathological? And one of the things that we identified in that study um, was that actually, here's the thing with young people, you can't expect them to be resilient on their own. You know, they need boundaries, they need guidance, they need socialization, they need adult authority. And part of the problem that they've experienced, I think, um, in recent decades has been that kind of, erosion of that guidance and, and of that authority. And what you see in higher education, for example, is I, I think a lot of young people experience their problems through the, through the prism of mental health because, you know, the university doesn't know what it's doing. I mean, higher education doesn't know what its purpose is. And young people in that situation are disorientated and confused and because the language of mental health is the only way in which we explain anything these days. They kind of interpret it all as a problem of them. Okay, so they think it's, it's their problem because they can't cope and that they need to find better ways of coping. And I think that we can see a version of this happening now. I mean, I think there's been a, a profound crisis of adult authority and responsibility in relation to, to COVID and young people. Um, and, you know, and that's one of the, the, the points that I argue strongly in the book. I think when this crisis hit, the first thing we did was we ditched the kids. And the symbolic effects of that um, are going to be quite deep and, and long running. And then having then cast them out of society, out of the guidance of their teachers, their schools, you know, those kind of adult well, relationships that normally give them some, at least some sentence, uh, semblance of continuity and stability, and then kind of put them in their bedrooms for months on end with nothing but Netflix and, and social media, and then now telling them that their lives are going to be screwed up forever. I mean, it's not going to be good for mental health, is it? So I think it's a real shame because I think it has catalyzed that cultural tendency to, to push young people more and more into themselves and to see themselves as the problem and the only solution within themselves as finding a better way of coping. Whereas actually, I think we need to be looking more positively outwardly um, about how we can create a, a more forward-looking society. Um, well, Emma, I would say what you like to that question, but also, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you in particular was that there's this quote in the book where you talk to, um, I think her name's Georgina, she's 11. Um, and she says, she's talking about the cancellation of exams. And she uses this phrase where she says, well, 
for for people for adults to just turn around and cancel my life in two weeks. And I thought, God, that's a bit extreme. And then I remembered what it was like to be at school and makes the point that, you know, when you're, when you're that age and you're at school, and it's particularly now when almost everything is geared towards exams, you're kind of the crescendo of your uh, young life is about to happen and then it's and then it's taken away and the kind of the the particularly the use of the word cancel there and um, really made me think but the question of powerlessness that's inherent in that because I suppose what I was just asking Jenny is you know what about agency why how can we start talking to young people again about agency even in the pandemic but I mean if the question is that you have not you have adults who aren't able to exercise their agency um, whether it's through restrictions legal restrictions um, or through a kind of this general malaise of powerlessness that lots of us are feeling how does that affect your ability to feel like you can take control of your life like you can you can do something of your own volition yeah so I think if I just quickly say about the men like the first bit on the mental health is that what I wanted to say is that I think, um, although there is mental health going on, that there's mental health support for a reason, and that to just say because people, young people are struggling with mental health doesn't mean that they're not resilient, because I think that a lot of kids and young, young adults, whatever you want to call us, will struggle, but also then will get through it. Like me looking forward to the next five years, I don't think that it will make us weaker in the future I just think that it makes it hard now and I don't think that's has to be taken as such a bad thing because I do think just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're not resilient and I also think that especially the second lockdown for a lot of young people from what my mum just said about it being quite isolating and mental health being that you think there's something wrong with you has actually made a lot of people realize it's not that it's wrong it's not that they're in the wrong it's what's going on so it's like me and my sister talking oh it's just because it's locked down like it's locked down like everyone's feeling like this and I think that has actually had in a really sad way some benefit that less young people feel like they're struggling alone because there's so much kind of notice that everyone's going to struggle because it's so terrible so I think that actually to say that the mental health will cause a wider crisis isn't completely accurate because I think that young people will get through it basically and then yeah so the idea of agency I think that's a really really difficult question because um first of all if you take back to doing school the whole idea of school is to get to prepare for to do well to go to uni to prepare for a better you know, future. And the problem with the lockdown is it's not that they just cancelled exams. It's also that universities are not really like universities in the same way. And it's also the fact that obviously everything after university with the jobs, like all of those crazy things in the summer about like so many people couldn't get a job, like 500 applicants for one job. Like I'm not going to get a job if there are 500 other applicants. I'm if like I'm just coming out of uni. I haven't got any experience. So I think one of the bigger issues was not just that they cancelled exams, but that everything we were told that exam stood for, for getting a better job, kind of it just completely destroyed the whole process. And I think that had a big like impact on kind of why we were doing what we were doing. But I think 
and I think yeah and I think that now with A levels and people moving forward with their education it's the kind of perspective has changed because it's not that they've been cancelled in the same way it's more that the way we're learning has become a lot more disjointed from what it should be it's like I know that one of my teachers always says like if you teach like teach me something and that I'm probably going to forget it but if you involve me in it and I'll learn and everyone's just not learning in the same way because and I feel like that's not been recognized that now online teaching is a lot better so we're learning the content but we're not going to remember it because we haven't got that interaction we haven't got that kind of involvement with the subjects so I think that the issue is not so much with um the lack of like structural lack of boundaries that people don't feel like they're connecting with their subject they don't feel like they're connecting with what they want to do because it's so separate from like what they want to be doing or how they want to be reacting with people so it makes it just a lot less inspiring going forward yeah there's there I want to come out to the audience next after I ask my last questions but then I mean there are so many questions I could ask you about the fascinating things that you go into in parts in the book about you know, the whole concept of online learning and why, you know, never mind the fact that we, as the news has covered, you know, there are many, 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 many families out there who barely have an iPhone between, you know, six kids, let alone enough laptops to spare to do uh, online learning properly. But also just actually what you've just pointed to Emma about the question of what school means. And I've been sort of increasingly realize, realizing, though I don't have kids myself with neighbors who have kids, what a kind of sanctuary school is actually for parents and kids and how important it is having that separate part of your life and how you just cannot replicate that I mean I know through what I can hear in the wall you can't replicate that in a sitting room it's in, it's torture it's impossible um but maybe people in the audience can ask questions about that because the one I wanted to end on is and this is the tricky one what is the solution and now I'm not asking you to make a prophecy and I'm not asking you to outline a kind of five point plan build back better new slogan for the government but more broadly what is it you've already mentioned things about um about you know the, the fact that that as, as someone's picked up in the chat this great quote that you gave emma about just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're resilient and i don't think jenny you said you were feeling bleak that doesn't sound like a bleak um outlook but what is it about the way in which young people see themselves or the way in which young people are being told to see themselves throughout this pandemic that has to change what is that what moving forward as we come out of this what are the kind of things that we need to be thinking about either of you and both of you you can start yeah I mean I think we've just got to stop seeing young people as the problem and start seeing them as part of the solution and, and give them more trust give them more respect you know they they demonstrated that at the start and actually all the way through despite these you know sort of ridiculous overblown headlines about raves and kids on the beach and whatever actually they're it's pretty minor stuff you know most young people have knuckled down got on with it demonstrated real sort of stoicism and compassion and you know even if they are struggling I mean I, you know I take that point from Emma I think a lot of the ones who I know that they, they are struggling but they're still moving on you know and they're and they're working hard and you know so I think that I, I, I just think that's the thing to start just I mean I think that we need to treat them more as grown-ups I think the government needs to treat us more as grown-ups as well. I think that's the, the precondition. It's kind of like we're all kids at the moment. 
which really isn't going to help us to give young people much in the way of um of guidance and support if you know we're having to watch the news to find out what we're allowed to do day by day um so yeah trust the kids um yeah i think going forward the one of the big things is that we need to make sure that people have something to like there needs to be some kind of end to something or some kind of hope so i think the thing is at the moment everyone's still got this hope of summer everyone's still got this hope of things going forward and so i think for what i can see as long as there's still some kind of ability to get out and move on then we'll be like that'll be fine because people really are just trying to get through it and that that is so fundamentally important that i think the worst thing we could do is just not keep going forward but I think also people need to take look at the issues that have been brought up in the pandemic that are so set not separate from the pandemic but they're not issues of the pandemic they were separate and the fact that a lot more people know a lot more and are a lot more involved with the issues of society that have been brought up by the pandemic I think going forward we need to take those forward too and act on mm. those issues for example a lot of the things that like you said about like some families don't have a lot of technology and a lot of the things about like the free school meals thing a lot of people my age and even younger than me had a lot to say about those things and I'm a lot more aware about a lot of issues than I think they would have been if we hadn't been in a pandemic and I think that going forward if we're going to learn anything it's that people need to stay aware and stay like active on issues to kind of make sure that if there are issues like I'm not going to say if there's a pandemic in the future, but if society kind of struggles in the future that these issues can be solved and people feel like they can have a say in how it goes forward. Fantastic. Great. OK, take a break, the two of you now, and we'll take some questions from the floor. Um, I have the, just an announcement, Reverend, I have the ability solely to mute and unmute. So uh, fingers off the buttons. I'm going to be trying not to be school mumish about this. Um, but Ellie Lee, I will take you first, so I'll unmute you and let's welcome, let's hear your question. Um, and thanks very much for organising this and um, doing so with the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies. Um, it's that that I wanted to ask about really, your parenting as, as part of all of this um, and picking up on the point that Jenny made about how at some level in this situation we're now in, we've all been turned into children. Um, and what then happens to the whole um, question of parental authority and parenting um, and how people see um, how that pans out now. I mean, the peculiarity of it, of course, is that um, parental responsibility has been expanded in a very peculiar way, hasn't it? Um, because we're all now having to do everything. Um, including, I think, particularly for younger children, it must be very difficult be their teachers. Um, and, you know, with younger children, um, unless you're in a situation where you can guide and direct their learning, the possibility of online learning at all, I think, is really impossible. Um, a little bit different to older children, perhaps, um, although there it's obviously very deficient also. But anyway, there's this clear expansion of, of what parents are being expected to do. But at the same time, parents really have no authority 
um, in any general way to make any decisions about anything. I mean, you can't really ground your children, can you? We're all grounded. Um, we can't really do anything. You can't, <laughs> you can't make any, any decisions freely about anything anybody's doing. And I think it's a very peculiar situation that we're, we're then in with that aspect of the relationships between generations. Anyway, I was wondering what people's thoughts were on, on that. Great, thank you, Ellie. Uh, we'll take John Bryan next. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to comment on this thing about going forward and, and, and what next and what the things are to look for, really, because I think if you cast your mind, for people who've got children, if you cast your mind back to last term, when the vast majority of kids were in school, there were certain things that were done, you know, to try and, you know, contain the virus and everything else um, that were done, which actually divided up children in the in the school itself so both in primary schools and in secondary schools whereas previously people were allowed to mix very freely that was kind of taken away people were put into bubbles people were very much separated out you know and my one of my concerns going forward is that you know some of those things that were introduced in last term may well continue you know going forward for the next few years and i think that's quite a quite a difficult thing you know to deal with and one of the things that we need to to look out for just one one other thing in terms of you know um i think well first of all you know great book jenny uh, and, and emma um and i do like the way that you talk about you know you don't want to kind of just cast a whole generation aside but let's not forget that people often talk about thatcher's children and the thatcher generation and that was kind of used as a kind of excuse to wipe out a whole generation and just say, this is this is one group of people who behave in a particular way. And I, th I think, you know, going forward, we do need to think about the ways in which people are just going to be, you know, categorised and just kind of uh, um, just assume that everyone's the same. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Uh, we'll go to Jane Sanderson now. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, one of the things I really um, liked what you were saying, Jenny, about how do we go forward and harnessing that um, talent and aspiration of young people. And I think earlier on we're saying we could have got young people volunteering and actually engaged with solving the problem rather than being the problem, as it were. But um, at my work, I work for a homeless charity and a few young people have um, said, can we volunteer children, uh, children under 18, you know, sort of between 16 to 18, we would like to volunteer and do something in this pandemic and they can't volunteer because of the dbs you know you have to have as you know they're seen as vulnerable people in themselves and so it's just such a barrier and challenge and it does seem to be presumably if now safety has become so overriding you think that tendency was there before covid now safety becomes just the overriding organizing principle in society does that not present a really huge barrier to us um, and letting young people flourish, I guess? Great. Thanks, Jane. Uh, Nancy next. Nancy McDermott. Yeah, um, uh, I, um, I had a couple of uh, thoughts about this. Um, one is that um, I have noticed that um, already it seems that, at least over here, there's a sense of young people not feeling like they have much control over their lives. Um, and uh, so I've been reading about, there's a new book called The Rules of Estrangement, where it kind of shows that it, it, it actually seems to be causing um, 
uh, uh, children to become estranged from their parents because it's the it's the the sort of um, only way that they feel like they can grab some control over their lives is to kind of separate themselves from these people who have kind of arranged things for them for their whole lives. Um, uh, so I worry, I worry that this is going to reinforce that. But then there's part of me that thinks that this could be an opportunity um, because I, I mean, I, I certainly know where I am. There's this real sense amongst adults that um, we have taken something precious away from this generation um, and, uh, it's, and, and we owe them something. We need to find a way to give, uh, to give them back the experience that's been taken away. And so I've been wondering if there are two things um, that we could be talking about. And one is, is uh, to sort of use this as, that, as an opportunity to talk about what childhood should be you know, what it, what does a good childhood look like? And it's, you know, it's not this for sure, but it's actually not what was going on before. Um, and the other thing is whether there's anything that we can do at the level of society to, um, to come back from this and um, where we work together with young people to try and, um, uh, to restore some sort of a sense of community to, you know, to help the economy recover, to, you know, pull things together again. Um, because I think, you know, it's, 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 uh, I, I, I think it's inspiring that idea of being able to, to take things forward. And so I just wonder, I wondered about that. Great, thanks, Nancy. Um, Emma and Jenny, I'll come back to you now, but just, I mean, particularly that that point, one of the points that Nancy made there was one that I've been struggling with, which is, uh, I think actually Jenny, myself and you did a debate on generations once, or there was some discussion about it. And I remember what, one of the previous generational tensions before coronavirus was the question of housing. And there was this, you know, the whole kind of baby boomer blaming that you've written about extensively, Jenny. And the kind of idea was, uh, you know, young, uh, you know, kind of affluent, aspirational millennials being ticked off at the fact that they couldn't get on the property ladder the minute they got out of university into a good job. And I remember saying, well, you know, welcome to the experience of every working class person ever throughout history. I mean, big deal, you know, kind of not big deal as in it is an issue, but cry me a river kind of thing. And is there a, is there a, is there, is it fair enough for critics to make that point now in terms of there are many kids who, particularly when it comes to education, uh, life before coronavirus was was not was no no kind of good quality, um, and so spending more time at home where you could even envisage having a bit more attention from if you have are lucky enough to have an attentive parent to be able to deal with it rather than being in a cacophonous class in a bad school where you don't get much attention at all. Just that that kind of tension and anything else that four people have raised. Um, so come to you two and pick up on anything. Thank you, um, really good questions. I mean, well, just on that, that point, um, Ella, I mean, I don't think I don't think there's one answer. I think we we need to have a discussion. I mean, that's the thing. Um, I think what the one thing that you know possibly in a good way, although it's not very nice when you're going through it. But what one of the things that COVID has done is it's thrown a very harsh light on a lot of the problems that um, politicians, policymakers, and I should say other people as well have been avoiding and evading for um, many years. I mean. 
we've known about the crisis in social care for ages, right? And so we didn't need the pandemic and the virus ripping through care homes to tell us there was a massive problem there. But I really hope that that's something that we can sort out. But I think at the level in, in terms of social policy in general, I teach social policy, so I get bizarrely geekly excited by it. You know, I do think there's a case for, yeah, going back to the drawing board, going back to the post-war beverage reforms and saying, right, we need to reimagine what we need from the welfare state and work out how to make it happen and stop trying to just patch things up or, you know, try and kind of get money out of old people's houses to, you know, I don't know, pay off some student debt or, you know, this horrible kind of piecemeal policy making that has been going on for ages. I think <laughs> we've seen, you know, the problems in the, in the health service, right? The pandemic has really highlighted those. We've seen the effective collapse of state education and that's notwithstanding the enormous amount of work that teachers have, have had to do. It's not about what teachers themselves have been doing, but you know, the state has essentially said for a year, we're not going to educate your children. Because as far as I'm concerned, you know, learning the curriculum through Google Classroom is not the same as education. Um, so that's something. We've got obviously a big problem in unemployment. We've had discussions about pensions for a long time. So I think there's a lot of problems around that um, we cannot avoid anymore because they've been shown up. And it's quite a good opportunity then to begin a kind of proper democratic discussion about how we make society work for everybody. Um, do, do you want to say something before I, otherwise I, was, I just rant? Well, I was just going <laughs> to say on that, I think that exactly what you've said, that there's so many issues, but what really scares me is we said that they couldn't be avoided, but they still kind of are. So <laughs> it's kind of this sense of, oh yeah, we could use this to make a change, but actually it's very difficult to see how these changes are going to be made. And the fact that it's like, take the government now, the fact that we don't even know when we're going back to school is kind of like, it's just, it's, and that's kind of what I meant with hope in the end. I don't think I was very clear that we need hope for wider change, and to see some movement of these issues going forward, because again, now I'm being the bleak one, I don't see without any structure being put in place, how it's going, how we're gonna be able to use this to really move forward with it. And I think that does need to change. Um, yeah. And then can I just say a couple of other quick things? Oh, please, yeah, go ahead. Um, so on um, the, the point that, that Jay made about safety and overriding and I think this is really interesting because I think another thing that this pandemic has shown the light on is how um, selective this pursuit of safety is because um, actually, you know, the whole year has been about stopping people from dying from COVID. Now that's a, a laudable aspiration, but sometimes it seems like anything else goes. Deaths from other things don't matter. You know, effects on children doesn't matter. Delaying children's development by a year, their social development is actually dangerous. You know, I was having this thought the other day when I was thinking, oh, well, you know, we're, sorry, Emma, we're like this. When Emma goes backpacking around the world, at least she'll be older and I won't have to worry about her so much. And then I was thinking, well, she won't really be older, will she? Because she'll be chronologically older. But all of those experiences that you build up to make yourself independent are going to be missing. And, you know, how... You know, new undergraduate students are going to fare at university worries the hell out of me, you know, as does actually how they fared this year. So I think that there is a, a real need to, to look at that, that question of, 
you know, that sort of safety first perspective, which normally has been until this year, last year, was kind of articulated mainly in relation to children. And there's been a lot of people who've criticized that for overprotecting children and not allowing them to develop. And then this year has sort of taken the form, I think, of a real kind of political and institutional neglect of children, um, which I think um, actually has caused a number of sort of fairly demonstrable and predictable harms. So we should look at that. And on the point about the classroom bubbles and, and everything, I, I mean, I should say, I, you know, I do think that social distancing, particularly early on in the pandemic, when we didn't have a vaccine and everything, I mean, so some of these measures were quite sensible. I mean, we're not used as a society to dealing with a massive infectious disease, right? And, and I think early on people got that and they were spontaneously behaving in a way so as to try and minimize um, unnecessary spread of this. So I wouldn't want to say that we, you know, like it's either lockdown or everyone goes back to normal. I don't think that's realistic. Um, but I do think that there is a, a worry that a lot of these sort of measures that have been brought in, which they're not benign. I mean, having a classroom of kids that are separated from each other in, in bubbles, it's, it does disrupt the school environment. You know, I've been teaching this term to undergraduate students. I've been wearing a mask standing about five meters away from them, a no, a visor. They've been wearing masks. Okay, it's doable. It's preferable to online teaching in my view, but it's not what you want. So I do think we have to keep kind of reevaluating these questions of, you know, how important it is to let people interact kind of uh, normally and not just assume that we'll just carry on with these weird behaviors once we've got the um once we've got the virus under control mm -hmm. um emma do you want to say anything or i'll come back out uh you can go back out. okay okay we've got because we've got lots of hands and i want to keep going so um uh, let's get back out so shirley laws thanks very much i've been um actually really quite heartened by a lot of this discussion um, although there are still lots of things that I, uh, you know, are clearly problematic. Um, Jenny, I agree with you entirely what you were saying. Um, you, you finished up saying in your, uh, your um, earlier comments about trusting the kids. But, you know, we can't trust the kids if we don't trust ourselves as adults. And um, I think what you were saying previously about the loss of adult authority is really, really problematic. And even, I, and I don't mean this as a criticism, even when you're talking about the year that Emma's lost and how she's going to be, um, you know, handicapped or whatever, you know, disadvantaged by that, um, careful because what we're doing, I think, is that we have to really be careful not to be projecting our own anxieties, worries, and experiences on, onto young people, and particularly onto children. Now, you know, Emma's a big girl, grown up, and she can make her own mind up what she's going to listen to and what she's not. But I read something on Facebook the other day um, of a woman who was talking about how, um, and this is moving into the mental health arena, about both her three-year-old and 10-year-olds were depressed. And I thought, <laughs> I, that really shocked me to read something like that. And I thought, well, I won't go into what I thought about, but I'll just leave that hanging. And then today I was doing a, a French lesson with my 10-year-old grandson on Zoom. 
And he was um, talking about this artwork he's been doing. And he said, um, oh, yes, it's, part, it's mental health week this week. And, you know, I'm thinking, do we really need to make young people really quite so aware of these things or so conscious of these things? And it really did bring home to me something a, a friend once said to me, that education, and I would think society in general, actually, is now more concerned with young people understanding themselves than understanding the world. And I, I really, I think there's a real conundrum there about how both um, parents, adults with young children, and most particularly teachers in, at this juncture, how they really can grasp the nettle and say, look, there is something really important that needs to be doing here. And that is getting back into the classroom and teaching kids. Um, and it may be that they have no exams and that could be, as you've alerted us to, there could be the opportunity of doing something different really. And in education, actually saying, right, now we've got the opportunity not to be worrying about mental health, but getting kids more interested in the world out there than the world they've been enclosed in in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Shirley. I mean, some, in terms of doing something different, um, some, a couple of people have floated in the chat the idea of uh, getting kids to just do another year of school. Someone's, I think it was Breesh mentioned that it's a technical point, but the question of, you know, as a solution to this, why not just hold everyone back a year, which... See, I mean, that seems eminently sensible um, to me. And I just mentioned something that Lauren has put in the chat where she talks about, um, writing from Ellie's account, talking about the fact that the classroom is not just a place where you learn, um, but she says also an environment that's important for other reasons, asking what is childhood about? Is it about socialising as well as uh, education? So an interesting point there from Lauren. And I will just say I've seen and I've flicked through the videos. I can see lots of um, parents and and children or teenagers and so i'd invite anyone to be brave and uh, give us a point of view from a from a youthful point of view as well so anyway noah what's your question or brilliant question? thank you thank you ella yeah there's obviously been um, lots of discussion tonight about the huge impact on education that lockdown will have on um children's futures but sort of um, referencing what jenny was talking about trying to be optimistic i thought i'd try and think about the future of generation z optimistically and i was wondering whether generation z could come of age through that shared um appreciation of education once again and i think this could happen in so many ways i mean i found it amazing how sort of sad children were to have their GCSEs and A-levels cancelled you know if I'd been in one of those cohorts I certainly would have been but I was surprised how sort of universal that was so I think they could appreciate education again through the importance of exams but combined with that obviously education is about far more than exams and knowledge being forgotten as soon as you've left the sports hall so I wonder whether actually when kids are back in the classroom again that would allow them to appreciate um the pursuit of knowledge in that way and critical thinking and also sort of linking to previous points about schools as an important place of socialization again whether actually once they're back in um, schools again children will appreciate and value education in a way they haven't before because I'm not saying that all kids have taken it for granted but almost it's like sometimes you only um, appreciate things when you've had it taken away from you so despite all the perfectly valid challenges and difficulties that have been raised tonight I wonder whether we can think optimistically about Generation Z because they'll um, appreciate education perhaps in a way that those of us that might be slightly older though I've probably cast myself in Generation Z um, never have appreciated it, it before. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Noah, for that. It's a really interesting question and contribution. Um, Elizabeth, I come to you next. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you very much for organising this and, and for the discussion. I think there's two things I want to raise. One is a general one, which is when we talk about the corona generation, we're, we're, we're really talking about, I, I personally have very close, um, you know, basically I'm, I'm an aunt and I, I have two, two kids that have been born since since Corona happened. So they're babies and they, they haven't seen their grannies and they haven't seen their aunties. And so there's really early developmental things going on as well, uh, as well as like four, three, five, six year olds and their experience of education is very different. And to get them to do online education, you really have to be in front of them, working with them at the computer which is very different from 14, 13 year olds or whatever, where you can at least expect them to sit at the computer. And then, so that's my first thing is that actually, even when we're talking about the Corona generation, we're already talking about babies, four year olds, 15, 17 year olds. And so they're all having a different experience of this. So that's number one. And number two is that I am actually an educator and I'm in third level education. And I have first years who have never stepped on campus, have no concept of what that is, have done everything through online. The fall off rate of the students who are just experiencing the, um, the, the, the this uh, bachelor's um, that they're doing um, has been much higher. And I think they feel very disconnected. Um, I'm also in the process of teaching people in their final year and I've just, finished the year before that who didn't get to graduate in a physical space we had a zoom call with them and I just think there's a loss here even if if people see that there's a potential opportunity to change things or whatever there's a loss here that I don't mean to be pessimistic but that can actually never really be made up for in these students lives and these young people's lives whether it be a little baby who won't get to see her her granny or a granddad for another year and the developmental um, changes and possibilities of that, or a 21-year-old who didn't get to go to graduation, didn't get to talk to people afterwards. It's so subtle and complex that by the time we're finished with it, this, I, I don't think there's one full policy or answer to, to any of it. And I think we've got to accept the complexity of it and, and deal with it in, in different compartments and, and not really see it as a generation because as I say even the concept of a, a baby born during this time as opposed to a, a, a somebody who, who wants to attend their graduation party and can't they're worlds apart and yet they're all young people and, and as a as a, a teacher I, I care profoundly about their experience in education and I am very frustrated about it um, because I, I feel my experience as an educator is really undermined by this and I would love to get back to teaching. And uh, the general line from teachers unions, both in Ireland, I'm from Ireland, and uh, my impression is also from, from the UK is that they're very resistant, generally speaking, to get back on campus. And I'm not. And it feels like they're speaking for me and they're not. Mm. Um, I'm more than willing to do it. And so if if anybody, it, it, obviously in, in including the, the two authors, 
would be interested in talking about that in particular. I, I'd love to hear what they said, because I think there's a resistance to going back on campus, and I would like to know what they think about that and the safety levels and all of that sort of thing. So Brilliant. Thank you. thank you, Elizabeth. No, that's great. Thank you. And just, I mean, on the question of, just to highlight that, on the question of resistance, I mean, the resistance to going back, but also the desire, resistance to lockdown measures or the desire to go back to uh, resistant uh, restrictions. Some people have mentioned in the chat, uh, Alison has, Small has picked out the fact that young people are coming up against um, the police when they push back against these rules. I mean, there is a tension here, which is that, how do I put it? If you, if society has broadly, I mean, we could have a whole other row about this, but if society has broadly agreed um, to what degree consensually to comply with lockdown measures. There is a question about responsibility and there is a question about whether or not you should be celebrating, you know, okay, the handful of Bristol ravers or, you know, it's happening all the time in London, you know, pockets of young people are being found in garages and really scummy places trying to have parties. But the serious point is there is resistance to it and political resistance and voicing your, your position and exercising your agency and then being irresponsible and removing yourself from not just irresponsible in terms of the virus, which is a real threat, but the but in terms of not taking part in a collective uh, approach to um, dealing with this issue. Jenny and Emma, I'm going to take because um, we're not exactly running out of time, but there are a lot of people who want to speak. So that's a that's a hint to people to be snappy now. I'm going to take Sally Millard and Josephine Hussey, and then I'm going to come back to the two of you, and then we'll go out again one last time. So, Sally or Dave, whoever it is. Oh, it's, uh, it's Dave. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, there's a really great uh, uh, book, uh, Jenny and Emma. Um, I really enjoyed uh, re enjoying reading it for the second time. Um, uh, I, uh, I mean, I share your, definitely share your concerns that um, what we're seeing is, uh, uh, is an abdication of uh, adult responsibility. Obviously, some of it um, willing. So, I mean, I work in the in the city of London and, you know, it had pretty much cleared out, uh, you know, before uh, the first lockdown became uh, official, you know, there was like a kind of a scramble for the, a scramble for the mad scramble for the exits. Um, and obviously some of it is, um, you know, uh, uh, unwilling and, and you know, people have been kind of forced into uh, lockdown because of the, because of the legal restrictions. Um, but it definitely feels like in general, like an abdication of adult responsibility. And I think you kind of really, draw that out uh, in relationship to uh, to education and um, and our societal responsibility to uh, educate the young and uh, for you know young adults you know our main method of inducting them into adult societies through uh, education that's the kind of the mechanism by which it occurs you know as most obviously uh, young people kind of staying uh, moving on or moving into higher education um, and what I, my question I guess is what's the uh, how is this experienced? And so probably it's uh, uh, in part as well a question for Emma. How do young people experience this? So I see it um, as, an, as an abdication of adult responsibility. But how is it uh, perceived, particularly by young people? Or does it just appear to be this is the normal thing to do in difficult circumstances? Great, thanks, Dave. Uh, Joe, I, will come to you. I just wanted to say two things. One was um, 
I think there's a difference between um, being an adult in society and being a parent. And as a parent, I've always projected my fears and said to my daughter, are you okay? Uh, you know, you've been in your room all this time and she's like shrugging me off. So I think like um, Jen, uh, Emma said, children and young people are more resilient than we give them credit for. And I'm um, really heartened by what Emma said about the positivity of um, the fact that they can cope with it. And I, I really don't think that what Noel said is going to happen, that the young people can come back and say, oh, I really value education. I mean, when, when I, I'm a teacher of um, primary school at the end of primary school, so year five, six, and they came back and for the, about the first week in the, year, in the summer, they were all like, oh, we're so pleased to be back. And then, you know, within a week or two, they were back to their old tricks of avoiding me and not listening and all the things that they do to push the boundaries. And that's the point, really, about young children is that they need boundaries to push against. And I think that's the biggest problem that we've had is that, you know, in the past, it was kind of big issues like climate change that we were asking for their advice on. And now we're saying um, you've got to stay away because you're causing or helping to cause a problem that is COVID and particularly in schools, it really worries me. You know, we talk about keeping children safe, but actually what we're doing at the moment is keeping adults safe by keeping children locked up at home. And um, the children have kind of been lost in all of that. And um, so I think that's a real problem. I mean, as for Mental Health Week, obviously um, these assemblies have been passing across my email exchange and I've been ignoring them because for me, the best, um, advice to um, teachers and parents for mental health is boundaries, in, interesting ideas, and um, children will thrive really from that. Um, and um, I think that what we need to think about is um, how we create from here, and I'd be really interested in what Emma and Jenny think about this, how we actually create something objective, because for me, it feels like things are unraveling slightly, you know, and I, as a teacher, and I watch the children on my Zoom lesson every day, all having very different experiences and um, interpreting my instructions for their work very differently and sending me very different things in. Um, and in a classroom, I can ensure that they have very similar experiences. I can level up those that I need to and all of that kind of thing. And I think generally across society, one of the things that worries me is that things are unraveling and becoming more disparate and um, how we are going to bring something much more objective with boundaries back in place. And I'd particularly be interested in what Emma thinks about that. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Joe. Right, throwing it back to Jenny and Emma, the two of you, and you, I'm not going to give you masses of time to so just make a couple of points each and then we'll come back out and rip through these uh, eight people with their hands up. So over to you guys. Yeah, so if I just start with kind of what Dave was saying, and I was kind of thinking about this before, is, is it really an abdication of adults or like high, it's not really the abdication of adults because I'm still obviously with my mum, I'm still obviously as close with my mum and my parents. I'm still maybe even my school, I know that my school is putting in this, a lot of effort to try and get people learning, get people in, get people registered, make sure that they can give young people what they can online. It's not the same, but they're trying. So I don't think that it's necessarily the abdication from our point of view of adults. I think for a lot of people we've been brought closer to adults because they're in the same situation as us. They're trying to figure this out as much as we're trying to figure it out. So I don't think that we see it as a failure of the adults, apart from we see it as like put it frankly the failure of the government like 
they're in this situation because the government put them there. We're in this situation because the government put them there. So I think that to say adults in general is too general and that moving forward, I think a lot of the issues of which people have raised with the like the difficulties with education and um yeah is that what we're realizing is that not everything can be solved from the kind of the kind of super like the superstructure of society which we would see as policy and stuff it's not going to solve everything and that actually to be able to move forward as a society there needs to be some kind of movement away from this reliance on policy and reliance on safety and reliance on just absolute structure because it's just showing that it's not going to go very far and that we can't rely on it because yeah, it's just not going to enable us to develop and make the use of each other and society and what we can bring to younger generations in the way that should be most beneficial. So I think if we take anything away from the pandemic, it is that society needs to take more initiative in ensuring its own development and using what we think as the key things and make them important again. Like, for example, if you look at education and like the issues with kids being disengaged maybe that's to do with the way that education is taught in general and that if we were to change the curriculum and kind of broaden things out would we engage kids more would they be more interested in the wider world would they feel like they have a place because they know what they're interested in where they want to go and I think that's what we need to take responsibility for making them feel like they have something somewhere to belong something to be interested in Okay, and then on the um, the question of keeping kids back a year from school, which I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I mean, I think we should let them if they want to, but I think we should. <laughs> this is the thing. I think coming out of this, we've got to have a proper kind of re-evaluation of what we're doing with education. I mean, we've been keeping kids back a year from school for years. That's why half of them now go to university until they're 21. We don't let them leave school until they're 18. You know, and a lot of this has been motivated by this sort of sense of, well, we don't know what else to do with them rather than by education itself. And then we fed them this line that education is really important. So you get your qualifications uh, so you can get a job. And then we cancel their qualifications and tell them there's no jobs because of COVID. So I don't think just kind of extending it is going to work. And and that's why I, I, I really, really do hope we can start having some sort of honest discussions about what's possible and you know, what we mean by education. Um, and get around this kind of idea it's just all about kind of getting qualifications and, and everything else and bring some content bank in and some proper intergenerational um, interaction. I also think I mean this relates to Ella you were saying about that that tension over what it means to be responsible you know um, is it responsible to kind of g your kids up to go on a rave and all of that and I mean and it is something that really bothers me because even though I'm stroppy I'm actually quite a big believer in social norms and rules and and compliance and part of my worry about the way we've been with young people over this past year is that I think it really corrodes that you know I think we when you're confronted with a dangerous infectious disease you want to encourage them to behave sensibly you know, and the best way of doing that is actually not by locking them away in their bedrooms and refusing to talk to them and sort of shaming them and blaming them and, and everything else, because I, I worry that that is just going to lead to sort of cynicism. So part of my reason for, funnily enough, I mean, for opening the schools is um, I don't think they should be open just to be treated as kind of arms of the public health state, which that bothers me as well. But 
I think it's really, really important as part of this effort to kind of get through the pandemic and, and move on to um, bring kids back into that sort of more socialised forum and, and discussion. Brilliant. OK, um, right. Let, so I've got eight people with their hands up and, and this is going to be the last time we come out to them. So I'll just say that you're, Jenny and Emma are not going to get to answer every single question, which I'm <laughs> the only reason I'm saying that is that don't feel the need to cram it into a question. If you just want to make a contribution or to make a point um, yourself, do so. Um, but let's in a snappy fashion. Um, get through these. So we'll begin with Linda Murdoch. Hi, um, Emma, I just wanted to ask you about something you said that I found really interesting. You said that um, around the mental health issue that um, it was almost like because your generation were having a shared experience that they stopped living in their heads and thinking that this was all about them. Um, and there wasn't the reason why I'm asking is I had a very similar experience in, in my research during the COVID crisis, asking students about how they felt about it in relation to their job prospects. And there wasn't this outpouring of anxiety and stress the way we would have expected it. Um, and all of them said that this is a great leveller, that the pandemic had made them realise that the way they were feeling had a real material, there was a real reason for it. And it wasn't just about you know um, them, and it's all their fault, and it's all about them. And I just wondered if that's if that's a, a useful way of this generation being able to get through this, that they can actually see that this is something that they're all in together. Um, and I, I, you know, and it will help the resilience. I mean, I hate the word resilience, but you know what I mean. It will. Um, it is an experience, and it's something to go through, and it's something to endure. So I just wondered if you, what you felt about that, or if you if you say a little bit more about that. Great, thanks, Linda. Yeah, if there was ever something to put angst and anxiety and stress into context, it's a it's a real public health crisis, you know. Um, okay, Alka Sayal Cuthbert, to you next. So many things have become clear in this pandemic that you kind of perhaps knew about or semi-intuited before. I don't think it's just a It's not just a biological crisis. And I don't think it's just even a political crisis of leadership. You can see that we've got a crisis in terms of the media that has failed spectacularly to play the kind of public role you would hope it to play. And also, you know, a kind of uh, almost like a sort of cultural crisis. And I, I, I do take Shirley's point very much to heart about the danger of, of um, imposing our own anxieties onto the young, because I think whatever happens at the end, you know, it's like, I don't think we're going to find the answers or we're going to do any favours if we focus exclusively on the young as if they were separate from us. I think how they, how they will react, how they will respond and the possibilities that will be open to them will depend on us and how, on, on how we act as adults and how we become, you know, make ourselves fulfil our role as the responsible adults we all, I think, hope to be and want to be. And that, that really just touches very quickly, reminds me, Jenny, you mentioned going back to really big basic ideas and you mentioned beverage um, in 1944-45. And the thing that is really um, strikingly, that, that for me, one of the most important differences between then and now is, is that loss of democratic culture. You know, that we do need policy making um, 
but we need policy making that is democratic, where the chains of communication and relationships between the local, the care people running the care workers, the regional health authorities, and then the, the national policymakers, all those things have broken down and, and government has got out of practice. I don't hold that the government is like a wicked thing trying to, you know, um, suppress us all. I think they are probably um, trying to do the, the best, but they kind of just, but they, they, they themselves are completely at sea. Um, so lots, so I, I think there's a sort of how young people will, will react will, I think, depend on how we react. And if we can try and look to ourselves and see how we can rebuild our lives in an adult world that's worth living in for all generations, that will probably be the best thing we can do. Thank you, Alka. Great. Um, Joanne Williams next. Yeah, another quick point on the mental health issue. Um, so Jenny, I really agree with what you're saying at the beginning about these being uh, around mental health and other discussions um, are kind of predating coronavirus um, and predating the, the lockdown. And suddenly awareness around mental health was something that we were promoting with children long before um, the current pandemic. Um, I do wonder to what extent, and this relates to Shirley's point perhaps about people describing three-year-olds and 10-year-olds as suffering from depression, to what extent in that build up, in the years building up to where we are now, we have destigmatized through a concerted effort, um, issues like depression, anxiety, and mental health problems with young people, um, to such an extent that the flip side of that is that Actually, emotions like being lonely, um, being miserable, being bored have kind of become stigmatized. Um, for one thing, we've kind of taken that vocabulary away from young people. Um, to, another thing I worry about is that perhaps to say that you're lonely or miserable or bored uh, kind of seems like a personal failing, even during the current situation of a pandemic, that, that you should be busy baking banana bread or um, kind of doing an online workout or something like that if you're feeling lonely and bored. Uh, whereas actually, actually, I think those are very normal responses, normal emotional responses to the current situation. But I think this real kind of um, a very peculiar situation going on where we're told that locking down is a kind of communal, collective response, that we, we're all in this together, that this is how as a society we're responding to this. And yet it's experienced as the most individualized solution imaginable. We retreat into our own homes. As parents, we draw upon our own resources. Um, it's, it's literally the surroundings of our own house. And, and we as individuals are expected to deal with this either as parents or as young people. And, and I do worry that if we can't, then this is presented either as a mental health problem where you are legitimately allowed to call upon external support or, or as just an individual weakness. Brilliant, thanks Joe. Uh, coming to Tom and Kelsey next. Uh, so um, I, was, I, I was really heartened to hear actually both Emma and Jenny talking about kind of what happens after the pandemic, what happens in terms of um, sort of political activism, particularly heartened to hear Emma do that because actually I teach her politics. So that was, um, that was nice. Um, one thing though I do wonder about is, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of feeling that way too, but on the other hand, there's another danger too, isn't there, that I was talking to Ed Doral, who I know very well on Twitter, and he, he made the following comment, which I thought interesting the other day, which was, I'm, I'm really looking forward to a day where there isn't any news. 
And actually, particularly with COVID backing on, backing on, if you like, to Brexit and various other events that have been very tumultuous, Trump, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if actually there's a danger of us going the other way, of us all just being so desperate to get away, to go on holiday, to go to the pub, to see our friends, to go shopping, to whatever else, that actually in the next few years, actually, we, we look for the politics of the boring, that actually we sort of, we, we head more, gravitate more towards the Keir Starmer type politics, if you like, and, and actually don't take on the kind of challenges that Jenny's talking about, about kind of the beverage, you know, sort of a new beverage report, that kind of thing. I love that vision, but I wonder if you see that danger too. Great. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you're waiting, if you're, and it's not just young people, as an adult, if you're constantly kind of waiting for the press conference to tell you what you can and can't do this week, then it does sort of, you do find yourself longing for, oh, can Boris Johnson just, I don't know whether I'm able to go out, can you just tell me? And there's a sense of, <laughs> are we going to remain in that kind of uh, dependency or are we at some point going to say no we make the rules now um okay uh whiz through these last four now um no pressure but be a bit snappy samuel barrett hi um so i i i had a point but i did want to maybe um hear emma's thoughts on it um speaking as someone who is um a generation z and who is at university who's an undergraduate i was wondering um so you know when i grew up you know, we I saw the internet definitely as a democratic tool, you know, something really beneficial to education. I felt that that narrative was always around with sort of other young kids and just how we saw the internet. And what I what I saw a lot now is just with the conversations I have with friends and I just hear around is that you know the internet has almost become this um or just genuine when we talk about online education, we always speak that, you know, it's a negative, it has so much negative impact, it's not democratic at all, you know. And I, I was wondering if um, perhaps, you know, um, we would, as the conversation was going, it felt a lot like younger generations are gonna, you know, grow up with maybe sort of pathologies because of the lockdown. But, you know, maybe we were pathologized before even, you know, as being an antisocial generation, a generation that was constantly, um, you know, um, on the internet or other things. And I think maybe is there a reclamate, are we gonna, you know, our generation will have maybe sort of want for like the physical commons or just generally something that is actually more social, more beneficial to maybe, and maybe that sounds romantic, but I was wondering to hear Emma's views on that. And if that is the sort of uh, ideas going around her circle of friends, her age group. Great, thanks very much, Samuel. Um, Fiona Cleary next. Um, just on the mental health uh, thing, I thought um, Shirley said something when she, when we were talking about how down everybody has been lately. And she said, oh, be careful because, you know, they're quite resilient. I just thought that made me think of something really important, which is just this really difficult balance to strike as a parent between being kind of attentive and responsible on the one hand and then not overindulging on the other. And I think anyone who's kind of wary of that is just constantly walking this tightrope and it's really difficult thing to strike. And I think it's really important to, um, I've talked to so many people over the last couple of weeks and pretty much everybody of every generation has sort of hit an all time low, I think over the past couple of weeks and hopefully we're sort of coming out of it now, but they're all demonstrating what I would say were perfectly mentally healthy responses to a completely insane <laughs> situation and I think it's really important to reiterate that point to uh, younger people uh, as much as possible and um, but just to end on a, on a more positive note actually what 
I have observed is at the same time as feeling very, very low and feeling like, oh my God, I don't think I can renew my enthusiasm to pull myself up again, you know, this third time around in, in the, that generation. I have actually sort of seen uh, an amazing maturity um, just in, you know, in terms of dealing with independent learning and the kinds of things you wouldn't be grappling with till you're at university. Uh, perhaps, um, but generally also in terms of how to structure their time and stuff. And certainly listening to people like Emma talking, it, it really renews my faith in that generation that, you know, all of these issues and problems that we're talking about having to deal with on our way out of this. Uh, certainly listening to Emma makes me feel uh, a lot more confident that the next generation will be really well equipped to deal with that and very mature as a result of what they've been through. And that's what I've observed among my kids and my friends, children as well. So I think there's there's hope. <laughs> yes, well, I agree with that and second that point, Fiona. Um, Anna Keenan, you're um, Yeah, I guess I want to raise my concern that this, um, the amount of policy that's been introduced and the amount of regulation is going to have an impact um, in that it will be an excuse for kind of people of authority to exert more control over young people. So particularly at university, um, where I am right now, I find that um, there's a lot more security around under the kind of guise of it being to prevent um, people interacting because of social distancing. But I get the impression that maybe something more sinister going on because obviously they want to have parties, they don't want to be so much interaction going on in that sense. And I just worry that in institutions that are increasingly um, infantilizing their students more, this can be used as something um, quite sinister to control young people further in the future. Great, thanks, Anna. Thanks for that. Uh, Georgina Newcomb. Okay, um, so my question sort of builds on something that Emma said earlier um, about young people being sort of fed up of living quite insular lives um, and spending all our day on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat um, and kind of now being fed up of um, using social media so much. Um, so I'm just wondering what the authors think about um, how young people are going to bounce back and respond from this. Um, do you think which force do you think is going to be sort of more powerful once we're back to some sort of normality? Um, is it going to be the kind of potentially irreparable damage of, of missed education, missed opportunities for development, missed social contact? Um, or is it going to be our sort of changed um, and evolved attitudes towards social media and, and social life? Um, you know, this impact of, of limited social contact, how is that going to change our, our attitudes in the future? Are we sort of going to bounce back from this and feel kind of a renewed sense of gratitude um, every time we can socialize, every time we can kind of have spontaneous social contact. Are we gonna um, sort of enjoy ourselves more, put ourselves out there a little bit more um, or is this damage gonna be sort of irreparable? Um, so are young people gonna be kind of crippled by anxiety or, or lack of confidence or are we gonna feel kind of rejuvenated and, and bounce back from this kind of better than ever? Great, thanks. Um, really interesting challenge there to what what the what the exit plan, as everyone's calling it, might look like, um, both in terms of the technicalities of this and the the idea of what politically our outlook should be. So, Jenny, Anna, I'll come back to you. I mean, just picking up on your final thoughts, some points that people have raised in the chat. I mean, Mo Lovett raises a really important point, which is the uh, which I think we've sort of some people uh, in their contributions have been alluding to, which is the difference between 
what has always been the case about the tension, the generational tensions, and what has been exacerbated throughout the pandemic. So some people have mentioned, uh, you know, I've caused a bit of a, we've caused a bit of a stir by suggesting that we might hold people back a year. Um, and some people are suggesting that it's, that teenagers would be outraged by this. I mean, genie Mac, teenagers have always been outraged, haven't they? It's part of part of the process of being a teenager that you live in a perpetual stage of either, you know depression or outrage you can bounce between the two of them um and so the and the, and the point that fiona raises about this the particularities of people's subjective experience of this and joanna alluded to this as well i mean one one young person or one family this might just be you know you could see the pandemic as a bump in an already very bumpy road uh, and they might be more resilient to it than a let's say for example uh more middle-class kid who for this is a break in what has previously been a rather perfect life and therefore feels more catastrophic it's not to diminish the feelings but the subjective nature of this makes it very hard to uh make broad political points and i suppose what i'm asking the two of you jenny and emma to finish with is anything you want but is can we make kind of broad political points on this or not projections but general you know in a positive way generalizations of how it is that young people should be thinking about themselves and actually as most of the contributions have pointed out how adults should be thinking about themselves and their relationship to young people coming out of this what lessons can we learn and what is particular to this current moment and um, so throwing it out to the two of you now for five minutes to pick up on anything you like thanks yeah i'm going to go first and, and let emma have the last word um I don't think, no, I don't think it's all over. I don't think it's all bad. Um, I mean, I want to stress again, uh, two things. First of all, that what we were doing in the book wasn't providing an account of an entire generation's experience, which would be impossible, uh, particularly sort of at, the, at that time. Um, it was a, a quite a specific thing that we were looking at. Uh, and also to expect, just to stress that I, I really don't think you can criticize lockdown on the, great, on the basis that it makes young people unhappy, right? because it makes it makes everyone unhappy and the pandemic will have made everyone unhappy and day after day of death and misery and you know it's it's horrible right so in a way i think there's a sort of sometimes this sort of kind of idea that you could kind of that what you should be doing is contrasting normal life with the problems now and that was never an option you know the the, the only question when the um yeah, when the, when the pandemic broke wasn't yeah it was how life would change it wasn't you know would it change or not change of course it would change and um my kind of concern is about the, the ways in which i think it has changed to be quite destructive of a lot of things that we hold very dear in our lives intimacy um authority um yeah the intergenerational you know responsibility and as also i think arguably made it less effective to deal with the pandemic as well. Um, I just want to make a couple of little points on um, Anna's point about uh, sort of mission creep with universities. Um, I do think that's um, a danger and I want to link it to something that April has raised in the chat about um, how <laughs> basically is it just like you know, people just don't like, old, uh, don't like young people, they don't like teenagers and this is like open season on teenagers. And I, I do think it's interesting because the way young people have been talked about recently um, reminds me of how they were talked about in the 80s. And then there was this period where it was almost like everyone wanted to gush about young people all the time. And adults were sort of almost like told that they had to pat kids on the head. And they were discouraged from 
doing stuff that's quite important, like telling them off for bad behaviour or, you know, just generally kind of playing a role. And I think in a very kind of weird and warped and quite disturbing way, partly what's happened is that the pandemic has sort of given the excuse for a sort of um, a way of criticising teenagers for bad behaviour without having to take responsibility for it. And I think that is really, I do, th I do think it is really awful. I mean, April talks about um, treating kids as, as germs on legs. I think it's been really dehumanising. And um, that needs to... Um, that needs to have a, a lot of thought. And I think, you know, in relation to Anna's point, I think there is this, this sort of sense of, um, yeah, we don't know what we're doing with students. So it just then becomes a rationale to sort of use more and more kind of measures under the guise of infection control, but actually just to sort of try and keep a bit of, uh, try and keep a bit of order. So I think that's unfortunate. And finally, um, I mean, I would, I would really love a day with no news. You know, I, I made this joke to my students, you know, back last spring about how, you know, I, I like studying sociology and not actually living it, you know, and it has been like this kind of relentless experience of constantly having to, like, like say, you kind of mired in, in death and, you know, confusion all the time as you're trying to, to work out what to say. And I actually see some kind of merit in the idea of the politics of the boring, um, but I think what I would mean by that is I, I would like to get back to a situation where we can have a proper, calm, democratic discussion that's not all about echo chambers, you know, shouting at each other and tweeting and trolling and all of that, where we are kind of trying to sort of say, well, we have a common interest within society of trying to, to um, deal with these problems. Um, and... Um, I don't think that means Keir Starmer for me, because I think the other lesson of this year has just been about how um, how cruel technocracy can be. You know, if you take one metric and you try and apply it, that reduced number of infections, and that can over that becomes the rationale for overriding so much else and clamping down on so much else. I think it it, it does show that actually what we need is more sort of temperate. Um, considered discussion with each other and particularly with people that we disagree with. Right, so there are quite a lot of points that I feel like I would quite like to address. So the first one is actually the one with policy control. I just wanted to mention actually something I heard on from Ella on a podcast where she said that it's not just young, she mentioned about drinking and how there was a uh, a regulation on pubs and that's not got anything to do with lockdown that's just to stop people drinking and I feel like that's a big thing like yes it's controlling young people but what of the policy is just trying to shape have more control over people's lives anyway so I think that definitely is one of those things that yes it has had a big effect on young people but also that is a much broader issue and then I think um looking I have to disagree with my mum on the when there's no news, but that might just be where I am. I do not want to go to a place where there's no news because I think, frankly, a lot of people our age do not trust the government and want to know what they're doing to kind of find a way to make it change and make something different. Because if there was no news and we didn't know what they were doing, God knows how much more wrong it will go. Um, and then I think... The issue, one of the big things with mental health and the stigmatisation is just that it gets very confusing with what is 
a problem is in what is a problem is in it's a problem of your life and what is a genuinely a problem with yourself and that so a lot of being it's like what Joanna says about being feeling lonely and bored it feels like you're failing and what a lot of people have said about oh it's just a teenager so I actually thank my parents for going you're just a teenager because although you might go oh no I'm not a teenager I'm like yeah actually you are a teenager and it makes you realize that like it's kind of a lot more natural and I think that's the issue with a lot of the thing I think mental health awareness is really key but if it's brought in at when kids are too young that then they just think every issue is a mental health issue when it's not so I think that I don't think the mental health shouldn't be addressed I think that it needs to be recalculated in how it's addressed to a lot of young people and I think what I wanted to say about the thing with the exams is I think there's really not although a lot of people say exams are stressful they don't realize how much pressure a lot of young people put on themselves with exams and university and that's where a lot of the mental health issues in education have come from and because of the individualized and competitive nature of education that no matter how much you talk to your friends about it you'd never feel like you are able to talk to them about it because it's just so competitive and that's why I think what I'm sorry, I can't remember who it said about that whole idea of like levelling up, is that it became useful because you didn't have to feel like you were on your own, you didn't have to feel like you were competing with everyone else because it got to a point where you were all just thrown under the bus together and it just took a lot of the individual and isolating pressure off, which put it in a very weird situation where you were entirely isolated yet almost less isolated in what you had you had some time to breathe um yeah and I think one the last point I wanted to make was on um the how a couple of years ago the internet was seen as a massive tool to increase democracy and to increase discussion and how that's kind of been tainted I think the reason is that it's been taken for like politics online it's been taken to kids too young kids of the age of 11 age of 12 were expected to know expected to participate and they were in things like the black lives matter movement when they didn't really understand and i don't think they should have had to felt the societal pressure on social media to interact in those issues and i think that the kind of although positive aggression in people were passionate about the issues and wanted to make a change made it quite scary and I think that's really the issue that came out with politics and social media that it got changed from something that should lead to discussion to something that kind of led to less discussion because people were too scared to say anything that was wrong and for a 12 year old to be in that situation and in in their own in their bedroom not able to talk to anyone about what it really means made it a negative experience yeah well thank you very much to the pair of you you end the book um with i think it's emma writing uh, i think actually jenny you can see that emma's more optimistic um view will win out at the end of the book and you say that emma that one one thing the lockdown is okay you were writing a number of months ago but i think it's still true given what the tenor of the discussion tonight that you you say one of the things lockdown has taught us is that we can have choice um, in our lives and our voice and the and the paths we take even in these very trying times and so I think that's worth 
remembering um, as something as an outlook that is not exactly bleak, but actually it has got some hope for it. One choice you can all make tonight is to buy a copy of the Corona Generation um, at, on Amazon. It's available, uh, as I said, ebook for those of us who want to, you know, the more environmentally conscious of the youth and in paperback. Um, so get it, get it wherever you get your books. Thank you very much to Jenny and Emma for a really fascinating discussion. I'm going to ask everyone to unmute and join me in giving you a round of applause. Thank you, Ella, for organising and for everyone for coming. It's really nice to sort of see you. <laughs> usually, we would, this is usually where you'd be signing books and I mean, yeah. drinking and all those kind of things. <laughs> We'll just say we're, we're drinking anyway, so well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> one. and just a final thank you to the Parents Forum, to the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies, which Jenny is heavily involved with, um, for uh, partnering with us on this. Um, there's lots more that uh, both Jenny and Jenny have written that you can look up um, as well as buying the book. And I will just plug one last time that, uh, that Emma will be back on Zoom on February the 18th for the launch of the Free Speech Champions as a panelist. And the link is in the chat for anyone who wants to attend that, a discussion about free speech and, uh, and young people and students and universities. So, uh, so there you are, the link is in the chats. And if anyone does want to become an AOI associate, support the Academy of Ideas, uh, head to our website and the support button, donate us what you can but otherwise uh, have a very good evening thank you for joining us tonight and buy a copy of the current generation